Loving God, we just pray you to add understanding to the reading of your word. And on this Pentecostal day too, we just um, bring before you and acknowledge that there are people here who have joined us by Zoom and we pray that you'd be with them as they are at home. And also our hearts are heavy because of all the things that happened around COVID. We know that there are people who are not with us today and uh, we, we miss them and we pray for them. We just pray you'd speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the reading today was kind of long, and uh, we don't usually read the whole of Luke's account of what happened on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's quite handy that it's cut into three parts, so that you can normally pick and choose. Uh, What happened and the people's reactions is in verse 1 to 13, And then Peter's explanation of what happens is in verse 14 to 36. And we normally miss out most of that um, because, well, if you read it, it's like having two sermons in one day. It's kind of double dipping. And then the third uh, section is the response of the people to the message on that day and a quick overview of the impact that the coming of the Holy Spirit has on the early believers as they constitute themselves as God's new-spirited people. And I thought it was important that we hear the whole narrative, sermon and all, because it gives us the overall picture of Pentecost and what Luke wants to tell us. Its focus is on God, and God fulfilling his promise to pour out his spirit on all who believe to uh, pour out his spirit on all who believe because of the saving work of Jesus Christ, fulfilling his promise of presence, power, and purpose as the Holy Spirit comes. Now, often we come to this narrative with our own questions and our own thoughts and our own interests. And with the rise of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, often the emphasis is on speaking in tongues, And, you know, questions about how is that connected with being filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, Is this the same phenomena that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians? Do you have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Remember that chestnut? Is that gift still for us today? Now, historically, a narrative about God's promise to fill all believers with the Holy Spirit almost gets used to split people up. Now, I believe in the gift of tongues. When I was prayed for to receive or be baptized or filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, I spoke in tongues. And I don't believe that Scripture says it's prescriptive for all people. In fact, that runs contra to Paul's teaching. My experience of it has been like in 1 Corinthians 14. At an appropriate time, I've given a message in tongues in a service, And someone has given an interpretation. But I've also had Acts 2 kind of experiences when I've prayed for people in tongues and it's been their native language. And they've understood what I've said. I prayed for a Māori man in tongues for healing. I had no idea how to pray for what was ailing him. So I said, do you mind if I pray in tongues? And he said, yes. And so I prayed, and afterwards he said, do you realize what you've just done? And I thought, I've done something culturally inappropriate here. I'm in trouble. But he said, you spoke in uh, Māori, and I understood every word you said. 
Uh, another time, I prayed for a Cook Island man who understood enough of what I was saying to hear God say, I know you by name. I know you by name in a Pacific language, which was exactly what he needed to hear because he was a theological student and felt like he was being squeezed into being a beige Pākehā. You know, and everybody just butchered his name. So to hear God say, I know you by name, was important. And he's gone on to be a Pacifica Christian leader in this country. Also, people point to Acts 2 and they talk about the order of salvation for people. You know, that this is the way it should happen. They should hear the word, believe and be baptised and then be filled with the Spirit. And they want to focus on that as the correct way that things should happen. However, when you go through Acts, we find that it it's not necessarily always happening in that way. In fact, God kind of does things in a messy way. Like, for example, in Acts 2, when the, when the Spirit falls on the Gentiles um, at the house of Cornelius, it's before Peter has finished his message. He doesn't get a chance to finish. And I think that's great, because I always find conclusions the hardest part of a sermon to write. So if the Spirit turns up before that, Great! You know, or later in Ephesus, they'd believed in Jesus and they'd been baptised, but they hadn't received the Spirit. They didn't know about it. And I think that for, in history, there's been a lot of people who just didn't know about the Holy Spirit. The key point, however, is that God pours out his Spirit on all who believe. God keeps his promise. Now, often... People use uh, passages like Acts 2 to try and box up revivals and tie them into what they want to experience, into the spontaneous and the ecstatic and the emotive and these sort of wonderful manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And that's great and they're wonderful. But when we look at the whole of Acts 2, we see that the Spirit's coming uh, comes, yes, with the gift of tongues and with great joy, but also an inspired exposition of the word. You know, in Peter's prophetic message, explaining from scriptures in an intelligible way how what they were seeing was the promise of God and tying it into the person and the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's that that people respond to. You know, the great miracle of Pentecost is that 3,000 Jews become followers of Jesus. Acts 1 tells us that the disciples in that 11-day period between Ascension and Pentecost devoted themselves to prayer and to the scriptures. And I can even imagine the two people who've been on the road to Emmaus with Jesus sort of being front and centre and saying, well, when on the road Jesus explained how he was a fulfilment of the Old Testament, you know, from Moses right on through, and that that inspired what Peter had to say at Pentecost. You know, can I say we actually need both? We need the spontaneous experience of the Spirit and the Spirit revealing truth to us in and through Scripture. It's in the experiential and the inspiring of the mind. That's a kind of long introduction. Don't worry, the rest of the message is a bit shorter. So let's quickly go through the passage. The believers were all together in one place and we're told that you know, they were there at Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, is the festival 50 days after Passover and it's the festival of the first fruits of the barley harvest. 
And it ties well in here with what happens. These are the first fruits of God's new kingdom, of the new messianic age, of the Holy Spirit coming and, the, and uh, you know, the apostles witnessing to the risen Jesus. And there's a sound like a rushing wind and tongues of fire come down from heaven and divide and alight on everyone. Wind is a sound and fire is a sight are both images from the Hebrew scriptures of the presence of God, that God is there. God is present by his spirit and fills all the believers. At the end of Acts 1, we're told that there was about 120, both men and women, and they all started speaking in different languages. And Jesus had talked of power coming and that they, the apostles, would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now in this demonstration of power, as we have this detailed account of all the exiled Jews from around the Roman world, hearing the great deeds of God proclaimed in the language where they'd come from, their heart language, um, where they hear the great deeds of God and Jesus Christ and all the languages where the Jews had ended up in the diaspora, it kind of it shows that this, they are going to be God, Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it's a foretaste of the fact that the gospel would also spread to the Gentile nations. That it's a worldwide message of good news. And I actually think it's one of the, the um, sort of, um, it's one of the distinctives of the Christian faith that it both uses the sort of, you know, the common language that everybody has. The New Testament's written in Koine Greek the Greek of the marketplace, but also the sense of being able to speak to, to people's heart language. That's why I love when we have Tereo in English and we had uh, uh, our friend Anosa here, Samoan, and we have all these languages because it's, you know, it's an expression of God's kingdom for all people. Yeah. Well, the disciples find themselves outside and a crowd gathers and they're astonished by what's happening. Some are amazed. Quite possibly they sense it's a God's thing. Others are sceptical. They say, well, they're drunk and it's just babbling. I mean, how can we hear these Galilean local yokels? That's the sort of, you know, that's the tone of it. And all speaking in all these different languages. Now, I don't know how they knew that they were Galileans. Picking up perhaps the way that Galileans were thought of by the other, other Jews, it was... Well, they kind of have that lingering smell of lake weed and fish. <laughs> or it may be their accents. Or it may be that they recognised them, that they had been with Jesus. This, however, gives an opening for Peter to stand up and explain what's going on. And in verses 16 to 34, we have that first missional address of the book of Acts. Peter counters the speculation that they were drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning and we were having a prayer meeting, not a champagne breakfast. And he explains from scripture that this is what God had promised to do in the last days, in the new messianic age. This is the fulfillment of God's promise from Joel 2. He says that God promised to pour out his spirit on all flesh, on men and women, young and old, free and slave, all who would believe, all would prophesy, that speak forth God's word. Young would have visions and old would have dreams. I have both. Midlife crisis, perhaps. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he moves on to show how this is now possible because of the life, 
Notice he actually acknowledges the humanity of Jesus, um, the life, the death, and specifically the resurrection and ascension of Jesus the Messiah. The resurrection and ascension show who Jesus is. He's also the Son of God. He proclaims the historic fact that Jesus was crucified and that Jesus is risen from the dead, showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of the hope, the messianic hope of a king like David. It's inspired preaching, gospel preaching. And you know, gospel preaching always points and witnesses to who Jesus Christ is. And he finishes by calling those who are there to repent and believe, to turn to Christ, to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And they too would receive the Holy Spirit as the promise was not just for one or two or for special people, but for all, for you and your children, for those who are near and for those who are far away. Then we see that there are 3,000 that respond that day, that they believed and were baptised. The Spirit took that inspired word and opened people's ears and touched their hearts. Now, you may notice we're not told what happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't know what kind of manifestations there were when that happened. But the evidence of the Spirit's filling and presence comes in the picture that we get in those last few verses of life within the church in Jerusalem. They were transformed people. They were committed to the teaching of the apostles. The Spirit is the one, says Jesus, who will lead us into all truth. Bring to mind the words that Jesus had said. They committed themselves to prayer, that communication and connectedness with God, with fellowship, with being the people of God together, which Luke expands on to talk of the meeting together in the temple, yes, but also in each other's houses and sharing meals and hospitality and caring for each other to the extent that they would sell what they had to meet the needs in their community. And the breaking of bread, a sacramental experience of the presence of Christ with them. And the apostles were doing signs and wonders amongst them. There was a sense of praise for what God was doing. They also lived out their new Christian faith in a way that the people in the city saw how they lived. And they were attracted by it. So much so that people were joining the Jesus cause every day. Well, what is there for us today? Well, the promise of the Spirit's filling and presence and an energising is for you and your children. It speaks to the fact that God still keeps his promise. God still fills and dwells with his people by the Holy Spirit today. It's for us here and now, as it was for them back there and then, that we too may be witnesses to Jesus Christ, human, crucified and raised to life again, the Son of God, Jesus, Messiah and Lord. It's for us. Now the Lord's Prayer, which we've been going through uh, since Easter, uh, finishes in Luke's Gospel with that famous Ask Not Seek passage. And uh, you guys from Tiki and Onorahi, uh, Adrian Whale preached on that. And uh, you guys at Central, Adrian's going to preach on that at the end of July for us. But it finishes by saying, you who are evil know how to good give good gifts to your children. Imagine how much more... God, who is a good father, will give the spirit to those who ask him. It's not a stingy dad. 
gracious and gives us the Spirit. You know, the Spirit dwelling within us as we ask God to fill us more and more and fill us afresh, he will answer our prayer. And it's a promise of presence that God dwells with and within us. When Jesus was crucified, it tells us that the temple and the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. God no longer dwells simply in a locality, but now chooses to dwell within all of us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' death and his resurrection has made possible by the paying of the price for our sins. And Jesus said, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. And here we have that in the filling of God's spirit in our lives. God keeps his promise. Jesus keeps his promise. You know, that we would have God's spirit in our life leading and guiding us. Our intellect and mind as we read and study scripture to reveal truth and make us more and more like Christ. Being in our decision making and our living. Now some people are still weary of the excesses of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. But you know, there is real joy in being known and knowing God. There's real joy in that. There's real peace as we trust in God's very abiding presence with us. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually feel loved by God. You know, it's not just an intellectual sort of uh, agreement to the, the tenets of the gospel. It's an experiential understanding that God loves me. God loves us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, we need the Spirit's presence to fill us and enable us to uh, live uh, the, uh, in, in, in the way in which God calls us to do. Uh, at men's pre-breakfast on Friday, uh, Adrian uh, prayed about people who could see a new way to live, and I thought, well, that's a really great, great way to talk about it, that kingdom of God vision, the Spirit's presence and filling, enabling us to live that way. You know, we need the Spirit's presence to do it. Because it actually goes against the natural human tendencies that we have. And you know, the church has gone through great periods when it seems to be comfortable just simply being a human institution, weathering storms together, being organised together. But when it's been at its most alive and vibrant, and when there's a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence and leading and guiding, when there's a sense of the power of God at work, I think sometimes we forget that God has kept his promise and poured out his Holy Spirit on us. We forget. You know, and we need to look for refilling and refreshing to be witnesses in our time and place. Now, sadly, people will try and tie a specific experience or a way of doing things or movements from the past to that. But God is sovereign. You know, God actually knows what we need. God knows and, and can fit the church to meet this hour. That leads to the purpose of the filling of the Holy Spirit. That is to be witnesses to Jesus risen from the dead. Witnesses in word. And we see that in the way that Peter is transformed from one who denies Jesus three times, who denies Jesus when he's challenged by a servant girl. He gets scared and wants to run away. To now standing up in front of a crowd of, well, over 3,000 at least, and talking of Jesus as Lord and Saviour calling people to believe and repent. But it's also a witness in deed 
with transformed lives, as we see with the way in which the new faith community lives. Now, genuine revival is not just about responding at a meeting and coming and falling down at the front, you know? It's not just that experience, but it's an actual fact, transformed lives. You know, genuine revival. Genuine revival happens when suddenly people get a hunger and a passion for the word of God. They get hungry about prayer, about unity. They have this genuine concern for the least and for justice and righteousness and compassion for the lost. You read that at the end of Acts, you know? And sometimes we kind of settle for something a little different. Yeah. One of the things that really strikes me in this passage is that the Spirit comes on the disciples. There's almost this mysterious scene change. Did you notice it? It says they're all together in one place, but suddenly they're out in in public and surrounded by this big crowd. I don't know what's happened. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened. I I always read when they're all gathered together in one place that they're in the upper room or maybe in the temple. But what the, the coming of the Holy Spirit seems to do, as one commentator talked about, is dissolve doors and withdraw walls. So suddenly they're outed. And they're public. And, um, you know, they're, they're out there and they're open to criticism, yes, but they have an opportunity to defend their faith. It's the spirit which leads us out from our holy huddle to be amidst the muddle of life with the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, the gifts of tongues here was given to, gives us the scope of that purpose for all people in all nations And it's interesting, our society today actually resembles the first century home of the gospel, actually resembles first century Jerusalem, because there are people with all language groups here with us. And so to go and make disciples of all nations, we just simply need to go out our door. We don't need to go on a plane to the other end of the the world. Maybe maybe that's what God calls us to do. I went for a walk in... um, in Greerton and Tauranga. Um, and you know, Greerton used to be very, very staid, very typical New Zealand, 1960s, 1970s. But as I walked up the street, there weren't many people speaking English. There were languages from all over the world. And I thought, wow, this is the same environment that the early church grew up in. And you see how the gospel transformed those times. I wasn't going to talk about that, but never mind. That's good. I also should point out that, you know, the purpose of the church is to witness to Jesus. And I should add that the Spirit also validates that witness, as we read about in Acts 2, by signs and wonders. Signs that point us to Jesus and his kingdom. Wonders which reveal the power of God's presence. Pentecost, as recorded in Acts 2, is a specific event in a specific time and place. However, God's promise to fill his people with the Holy Spirit is for all people, for all times, for all places, for you and your children, for those who are far off, even down here in the northern tip of New Zealand. Far out. (laughs) God wants to fill us with his presence 
to dwell with and within us, to empower us to witness to him, to prophesy, let's speak forth God's word, and to dream dreams and see visions of what God's spirit is able to do. Not necessarily to build big flashy churches. And I think that's what's happening at the moment with a lot of these mega churches sort of unraveling around us is that they've got a vision for being a big flashy church. But you know what? The kingdom of God is so much beyond that. The kingdom of God is about seeing the, the poor, met, their needs met, the lost coming to Christ, people being um, set free, being able to grow in their Christian faith. And over this kingdom come season, we've been praying, Holy Spirit come. And you know, we know that God will send his spirit more and more as we ask him to. Because it's God's desire to dwell with us, to empower us and to work with and within us for the kingdom. Our faithful God keeps his promise to send and continue sending his spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's you. It's for you. That promise of God is for you. For you. For all of you. I'm not going to do a Pentecostal twist your arm up behind your back kind of thing. But I'm going to invite the music team to come up. And they're going to lead us in a song which is, called, which is the, the blessing, the ironic blessing. And as we sing it, I want you, maybe even just to the people around you, maybe even just hold hands with them or put their hand on the shoulder, um, you know, if you can. And, and as we pray for the Lord just to make his face to shine upon us, that we might know him. And it's, you know, it's the ironic blessing, but it's a threefold praying for the Lord's name on his people. You know, just, just pray, Lord, just bless these people more and more with your presence, more and more with your spirit. And I just pray that you just be open to whatever what God wants to do. And we'll sing it through a few times. And I trust Cherie and Jimmy to be kind of sensitive to what the Spirit 